We figured if we were going to be dealing with such a long passage, we should bring in our orator in order to read the text for us. So we're grateful for eloquence and articulation. Well read. I want to say one thing before we start into the text, and that was uh, I was going to put this out in a video to you this last week, um, but I didn't, and so here we are. I'm going to explain it to you now. There may be a question for some of you in the church why we've decided to be more vocal about an upcoming vote, especially a local one. If you're watching this and you don't really know what we're talking about in Ohio, Ohio's constitution is written in such a way that it can be changed and added to with 50% plus one vote. We also have a bill that has been held up. It's not being enforced right now, but it was passed called a heartbeat bill. Heartbeat bill meant that no child whose heartbeat can be detected in pregnancy can be aborted. Now, like I said, it's law. It's not enforced yet because it was going through the courts. But with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, with the arrival of the heartbeat bill, those who really want to see abortion continue in Ohio came up with a pretty uh, mischievous and effective plan, it seems. And that's to take the opportunity to appeal to the popular voice or potentially the popular vote in Ohio and to capitalize on the idea that you just need one more than 50% in order to write something into the Constitution. Um, we had an issue one vote that already came up where in light of the fact that in November that's the vote, uh, the vote being in particular over the issue of what's called reproductive freedom, but of the five things listed in that bill, the fifth one, abortion, is the, 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 it's the real linchpin of the vote. And because of it, um, it's possible that after this vote um, passes or is taken, should it pass, should it fail, um, it would be possible that in Ohio's constitution would be the right for a child to be aborted. Now, the fences put around that in the law itself, or in the, uh, I keep saying law, the, the amendment to the constitution, the fences around abortion are relatively porous, meaning you could get through the fence without having to work too hard. Basically, the one who decides whether an abortion would be legal or not would be the doctor. And so you can imagine if a doctor is so inclined, they could say that because of the health of the mother, really without any other restrictions, um, a baby could be aborted. Now, the question, if that's, if that's the vote that's coming up, the question some of you may have is, why has Trinity Church chosen to be more vocal about this particular vote? We usually, whenever a, a vote for a party or a candidate comes up, have encouraged you to vote. We've encouraged you to research who would best represent your values and to vote your conscience in that regard. But we've never really endorsed a candidate or a party. And the reason that we're doing something different this time is because this is different this time. <laughs> I want to highlight the difference. If we were to endorse a party or a candidate, especially over a couple of the last elections, I, can say, I would imagine you could see the problem. In fact, one of the things I've fought for as a pastor is to make sure that what we preach and what we proclaim and what we hold to for our hope as Christians is not in any way made synonymous with a party or with a candidate because I think that that would be a mistake. I don't think that candidates have represented our church's mission or vi vision well, and I don't think can parties necessarily have. Now, there have been ways that we may be more conservative, we may be more in line with a party or a candidate and what they've done we may celebrate or stand against, but we've, for reason of the fact that we don't feel like a party or candidate represents us, we've chosen to hold off. That's not the case with this vote. And so we have values that we wrote into the constitution and statement of faith level of our church. And one of them is around human dignity, especially of all those from the moment of conception to the moment of physical death. We believe these are human beings that ought to be treated rightly. This vote is directly against that. And that's why we've spoken to it that way. In the email that Keith mentioned that goes out every week, I'm going to have a link to some things that might explain this vote to you a little bit more, especially if you're thinking, we already voted on issue one. The previous vote of issue one was to try and change the number of people in the state who would have to vote to actually change a constitution. In other words, we wanted to make it not 
50 plus one, but more of a 60% vote. That failed. And so this is a new issue one, all right? And at stake is whether or not the unborn in our, in our state are protected. Roe v. Wade basically uh, being reversed, put it back in the state of Ohio, and so here we are. We're one of the first states who gets to face this battle, and we're encouraging you as a church to be engaged in it. So if you have any more questions about that, you can see me, Brad, Keith. Uh, Mike's away this week, but you can talk with him. Uh, we'd be glad to talk with you a little bit more, uh, but we feel like this vote's pretty clearly in line uh, with the way that our mission and our values have been put forward, what we voted on before as a church. So that's why we're saying this. All right, seeing a lot of nods, which means move along. We want to hear about those allegories in Galatians 3 and 4, Darren. So let's do that. To do that, I want to tell you a story, particularly for those of you who may not have been around here for a while. We as a church, over our almost 25 years, and just so you know, when we enter into 2024, we will be as a church starting our, <clears throat> essentially, 25th year of existence. Now, over that time, we've met in a middle school over in Garfield Heights. We've met in an intermediate school in Westlake. We've met in a former disco teen club in a strip mall. We met for a little while in a barn. We met for a little while in another church, but we've been here for quite a while. That move to this building was something that a lot of us had on our hearts for a while. The ability not to have our rent either doubled, as happened at the first place, as sort of happened at the second and was definitely happening in the plaza, um, but also the ability just to be able to gather, turn on our own lights, not have to pull out our own wires. Those things have been, I think, a gift to us, and we've been grateful for it. We as a church knew we wanted to be here as a building. And coming here in this building really in some ways has given birth to a new expression of this congregation. But there's a story that some of you don't know, and so I want to tell you that story. That's that before we were given this building by the Lord, there was another building that we were pursuing. And the story you know is that we tried to get that building and tried to have that building give birth to a congregation. Um, but we ran into some roadblocks. And the story that I need to tell you is that without the elders' permission, and without really any of your knowledge, I've been leading a second church from that other building. That building you might have thought didn't work out, I want to let you know and have to confess to you that at the same time as we've been doing this, I started another church in that building we were trying to meet at. You may wonder where I've been on Sunday afternoons. I've been there. And through the process of leading another church in that other building, another church was born. Now, you're laughing a little because you're not taking me seriously, but I want to tell you that everything I just said was true, minus a few details, all right? When I say church buildings, I don't really mean church buildings. I mean women that I've married. And when I say church congregations, I don't really mean church congregations. I mean actual boys that were born. And when I say me, I don't really mean me. I mean Abraham. So that was just my way of telling you of Genesis 16 and 18. You see what I did there? What I did there is I told you one story and through the power of metaphor, I was telling you another story. Are you all aware of what was going on? All right. Now, I realize that if you clipped a portion of this on YouTube, I could get in a lot of trouble if those things went viral. So please take this all in context. The story I was telling you was true, allegorically speaking. And in the heart of the end of the Muppet Christmas Carol, where Gonzo says, if you like this movie you've just watched, you can re read more about it by what Charles Dickens actually wrote. If you like that metaphor, you can read more about it in Genesis chapter 16, 17, and 18, where you hear about me, no, not me, Abraham. Who planted two churches? No, not really. Married two women, sort of married, but basically impregnated two women and had two sons that came out of that. Metaphor. Now, if you like metaphor, if what we just did just warms something inside your soul, guess what? You're going to love this sermon because this sermon is nothing but metaphor. This 
passage that we've looked at here is nothing but metaphor. Now, you may notice that from 319 all the way to 431, uh, Stephen did skip a little chunk in there. The chunk that he skipped over, we're going to look at in two weeks. The reason that I wanted to take all three of these metaphors together was one, so that I could introduce the sermon that way, because I thought that was just going to be wonderful. But two, because it is a weird approach that Paul takes. And that's because he has in mind something that I want us to not lose the big picture of. I wanted us to see the whole uh, kind of current of what happens in three into the end of four, kind of all at once. It's because of this reason. If we read in chapter two, sorry, three really is what that should say. Verse 23, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Metaphor. But when we get done with all of this and we arrive in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul begins chapter 5 this way. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And so I think there's a sweeping concern that Paul really has for us in 3 into 4, which is to understand what has it been like for God's people to have been enslaved, imprisoned, And where did this freedom come from? And what is this freedom going to sort of accomplish or give birth to in our lives? In other words, when we get to chapter 5, this is going to start getting good. Not that it hasn't been good. But if you're all about, how am I supposed to live, Paul? All right? If you're a Jew in the first century and you're reading Galatians and you're thinking, we've got all these Gentiles coming into the church. This whole region used to make a lot of sense to us. We had synagogue. We had the law. We had the one God. And it was very simple. We had pagan Romans. And if they wanted to come to God, they came to Torah and came to us that way. Now, Paul, you're messing the whole thing up. We've got pagan immoral Romans, Gentiles, Greeks, non-Jews coming to God and you're, you're telling us that the law is not the thing that's going to make them holy and righteous and justified. You're saying it's somehow through the content of what they believe that God will make that transformation happen. But for centuries, God's been using the law. So what's the law for? What's been going on? Is the law contrary to promises of God? Paul's been making these points for a while. And he's saying, no, it's not that. It's not that. But it's not what you've been thinking it's doing. And so in three metaphors, Paul's going to kind of put this to bed. Now, The other thing we're going to do in a little bit before we jump into chapter 5 in a few weeks is we're going to have the kids with us next week. And so we're going to take like three of these verses and we're just going to hang out with them over those verses next Sunday when they're in with us. We'll jump into the little part that we're going to skip in two weeks, all right? And we'll look at Paul's testimony and his appeals that he's making to those he's trying to to make this appeal to, the way that he does it, and we'll, we'll try to learn from that. But today, from middle of three, Till the very end of four, three metaphors, that's what we've got. All right? These are three metaphors ultimately to describe our redemption. And the first we want to understand is the imprisonment of the heirs of God. Chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, that was just the first metaphor. Do you hear the enslavement of the people of God, who are not just the people of God, they're talked about as heirs, but they are, they are ultimately here imprisoned. That's, the, that's the, the metaphor we get here in chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held in a captivity and imprisonment under the law. The freedom you Jews thought that you had under the law wasn't really the freedom that you think you have. Think of it 
Kind of like the speed limit analogy that we've used before. What does the speed limit do? It slows you down, especially if you're driving around through Olmstead Falls here, where apparently the speed limit is 25 for no apparent reason, other than the fact that people live here and they really don't want us driving around that fast. But that was a thing that I learned very early in our time here. We had just gotten into the building, and I got pulled over on the first day home from here. Driving through a neighborhood, got pulled over, and I was like, are you, what happened? And he said, what, are you new around here? I'm like, no, I live in the township, but we just bought a building off of Lindbergh. What? He said, oh, yeah, 25 miles pops up. You need to be aware. That moment did two things for me. It, one, restricted my future speed. It made me aware of what I was having trouble doing. And it prevented me from doing it. So it restricted me. It functioned the way it was supposed to. It's also incredibly impossible to drive 25 miles an hour when you want to get somewhere. I could never run 25 miles an hour. If I were, you guys would be so impressed because, you know, my name would be out there under the, in the lights. But the fastest I've ever run in my life has never gotten close to 25 miles an hour. But when I'm driving, 25 an hour feels so slow. So the speed limit restricts me from going fast, but it also reveals how fast I want to go. And the truth is, if I had freedom to do everything that I'd want to do, I would be blowing through stop signs and speed limit regulations. I'd be making life totally unsafe for everybody else who'd be there, but I would be happy because I would be free to do whatever I want. And in some senses, Paul's saying, do you understand the captivity that the law has placed over you? It's a captivity that reveals. It's a captivity that restricts, but it was a captivity. What it didn't do was make you want to go slow. Now contrast that to the first time that we had a little um, event in our backyard that we called serve after a little while. For a couple of those, we had Rocco. Remember, any of you remember Rocco Nicolo? Rocco was a good old boy, worked as a trucker, loved kids, and we combined every one of those things together, and Rocco brought over his wagon and his mower and some hay, and he just drove the kids around our backyard. Oh, it was a blast. I'm pretty positive Rocco did not go more than 25 miles an hour. Because we kept all the kids on the back of the cart during that time. And in fact, if I had told Rocco, Rocco, you can drive as fast as you want, there would have been something inside Rocco, the trucker who doesn't want to go 25 miles an hour most of the time. At that moment, something would have not restricted Rocco. We wouldn't have had to put up a speed limit. If I would have said, Rocco, go as fast as you want, something inside Rocco would have been like, well, yeah, I want to go as fast as is good for the kids. I'm not restricted by a speed limit. I'm restricted by what's happening inside me. I want to keep these kids on the wagon. I don't want them running back to mom and dad going, oh, what's going on? Rocco, in other words, didn't need a law because he had a heart. And the difference between the law for these folks, for God's people in the past, is that the law was ultimately captive and imprisoning. It was, to use verse 24's language, a guardian of sorts until Christ came. Because what the law never did was give you a different heart behind the purpose of the law. When Rocco would go as fast as he wanted to, in any other setting, he's trying to make money. He's trying to get from here to there. He's trying to get the job done. He's trying to get home at the end of the day. 25 miles an hour is a burden. But when he's caring for the little ones behind him, it wasn't a burden. It was a delight. He was never happier than when he was driving so slow. And I don't think you could say that for him most of the time. But the law, without any change inside, functions more like an imprisoning, restraining kind of force. But 
Verse 25, now that faith or the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for Christ. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have then put on Christ. And so who's more important? Who's less important? Who's getting closer to God? Who's further back in the pile? Paul says in verse 28, that it has nothing to do with it. Jew and Greek, nothing to do with it. Slave and free, nothing to do with it. Male and female, nothing to do with it. Now, the shame is, in terms of where we're at in our other discussions in the United States right now, this is a verse that has to be talked about more by what it doesn't mean than what it does mean. But to what it doesn't mean, listen to Kevin DeYoung for a minute. Both men and women are held prisoners under the law. Both are justified by faith. Both are set free from the bonds of the law. Both are sons of God in Christ. Both are clothed in Christ. And both belong to Christ as heirs according to promise. Paul's point is not that maleness and femaleness are abolished in Christ, but that sexual difference neither moves one closer to God nor makes one farther from him. Same thing would be true of employment. Same thing would be true of race. Same thing would be true of anything that you're ranked at in our society that though we don't have a strict caste system, it functions so well to stratify people nonetheless. We know who's important. We know who's popular. We know who has the ability to cancel and we know those who are getting canceled because we know who has power. And Paul's point is, if all that I'm telling you is true about what faith did, when it dismantled the law, then the thing you need to remember is that none of your other categories have any power in the kingdom of God anymore. And the way that he sums it up, we might say it this way. Because Jesus came then, God's people are no longer imprisoned, but they are what we might call distant heirs. They're heirs of something to come that changes the way that they have hopes in the present. Now, the way that Paul uses metaphors, these are going to be a little bit more like casserole ingredients, kind of all flowing together. In fact, he talked about imprisonment and captivity, but then mentioned this, this role, this one person, a guardian. And you might think of that guardian more like a prison guard. But he's going to move into a second metaphor of sorts, using that guardian language, where he says the following. I mean then, chapter 4, verse 1, that the heir as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You get the context of what he's talking about? You're going to be future, distant heirs, but let's talk about your present reality and the way the law functioned for that. If you have the hope, as a little kid might have a hope growing up in a rich home, that one day all this would be yours. Can you entrust all that to him now? No, absolutely not. In fact, if you looked at his present life, you might say this rich little one, this future rich one right now has no more freedom than if he was a slave. These got guardians over him. He's got pedagogues is the word if you looked at it in the original a little bit more. We think of pedagogy like teaching, that kind of thing. But a teacher back then was a little bit more like a, like a nanny. All right? We've got more of a situation where a live-in teacher who's managing, verse 2, guarding until a date set by the father. Verse 3 says this, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And I, I don't know about you, but as a formal, former teacher who's all of the kids were coming through elementary school, I read that verse immediately like this, elementary principles, which I just found really funny, to be honest, for a little while. I was inviting my kids in to talk about this. I just thought it was, we're all like this bunch of little kids in an elementary school enslaved by the elementary principles who are the whip masters over all these poor little kids. That might be the way that you read that at first, but it has nothing to do with tyrannical overlords in elementary schools, all right? Elementary principles actually could be interpreted kind of one of two ways, and it, it's, it's tough to know which way to really go. 
Elementary principles could represent what we think of as principles. In fact, in the, in the ESV, it's been translated that way. The elementary basic laws, rules, structures that govern life. In both Judaism, yes, but also like everywhere else. Rich Gentile, rich Roman, rich non-Jewish kids, all of them instructed and brought up under basic ways of being good Roman citizens, basic ways of not getting killed, basic ways of abiding by the laws. There are elementary principles that guard us, both within Judaism, but just so, so broadly in life. This is what elementary schools are for, teaching the elementary principles of life, L-E-S. There's also, though, another verse coming up in chapter 4, verse 8, that might have it translate a little bit differently. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to, the NIV says it this way, the elementary spiritual forces of the world. Or another way of, of translating it might be the elementary spirits of the world. And you'd, you'd wonder, wait, 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 spirits and principles do not really seem like the same thing. Thing. Can't you just pick a word? Guys, just remember, this is a moment not written in the 21st century, not written in English. We're translating an ancient document, and the word used really actually could go one of two ways. It could go in the elementary principles way, which is the way that I just explained it to you. It could go in the elementary spirits way, and the rationale behind kind of interpreting it that way might be the fact that in Galatians 4.8, you hear this same language. It's kind of paralleled. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And in that sense, John Stott picks up on this verse and says the following. God intended the law to reveal sin and draw us to Christ. But Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive us to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to our justification. Satan uses it as the final step to our condemnation. Now, I don't want to step in with my vast knowledge of New Testament Greek and tell you that Paul intentionally used a word that could be translated either way, and he meant it to be used both ways. Most times when people use words, they don't mean it that way. But if we leaned in the second, I don't think it obliterates the first. In other words, assuming on the fact that the life is structured, life is structured both religiously and civilly with a bunch of rules that we have to understand and that generally what we get by living in that air religiously and civilly is the idea that the more I follow these rules, the better my life is going to be. The more I do what the teacher says, the more the teacher is obligated to give me an A. The more I do what my employer says, the more my employer is obligated to give me a raise. The more I do what God says, God is obligated. Oh, wow, we just crossed into bad territory. Didn't we? You see, because of the way that we live, we can think the same way about God that we think about everybody else. Elementary principles. But to live that way is enslaving. Because grace breaks all of those rules. And the only freedom that we have is when God enters into our mindset and says, you honestly want what you deserve? Oh my word, you have no idea what you deserve. How about I don't play by your rules? Instead, I set up my own rules. And what you deserve, I give to Jesus. And what Jesus deserves, I give to you. What if, what if I did that instead? Well, that would undermine all of Satan's agenda which is to, is to drive the people of God further from the presence of God, away from the grace of God, and into their own self-everything. Self-importance, self-reliance, self-dependence, self-exaltation. All of life would move in a satanic pathway if we allowed Satan to use the law the way that sadly he is driving people over the years. Listen to Stott again. God intended the law to reveal sin and draw us to Christ. The restrictive nature and the revealing nature of the law. Wow, you really need something to happen inside so you don't want to drive over the speed limit, but because you care about the people you're around. How might that happen? Satan says, yeah, forget that. How about we just use the law to tell you you're a loser? 
How about we just use the rules to instead of driving you to Christ, drive you to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to our justification. Satan uses it as the final step to our condemnation. And so what Paul said about the law so far is that before Jesus came, this is all that really could be done inside the human heart. No ultimate transformation. Temporary means of being forgiven and over, having your sin overlooked, but nothing that would ultimately transform your heart the way that we needed someone to ultimately show us an answer outside of the storyline of Scripture because everybody up to Jesus had been a massive disappointment. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman like us, born under the law like us, to redeem us who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, basically two different languages. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Wouldn't, wouldn't these be the verses we would want our hearts to fixate on? Yes, good, because that's what we're going to look at with the kids next week. But in the meantime, understand this. Had Jesus not come, do you understand the kind of songs you'd be singing this morning were you to gather into God's presence? They'd be nothing of your redemption or your freedom. They would be of God's patience, of your faith in a system that feels like it's still broken because it's not bringing transformation, and with a waiting for something that could ultimately feel like it really fixed the problem. Hope but unclear hope. That's not what we have. We have a certain hope because when time was ripe, Jesus came. Next week. But the question this does put forward for us that we don't have to wait a week to answer is when you look at yourself right now in the household of God, you look at your track record, you look at the hope you have for the future, you have to look at where you are right now and whether you can come to God. How do you view yourself? What do you see? And I, I'm concerned that too many of us are like the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. We've failed, we're far from home, we're unworthy. And we rehearse that all the time, all the time. Hoping that somehow that little litany, our own personal remorseful liturgy, that that might do something to win God back to us. And we say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants, your slaves. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And maybe through the long process of doing that, you'll just kind of like me again, welcome me again. If that's your version of Christianity, I just gotta say it. You're not a Christian. You're religious, you're guilty, you're condemned, but Satan is using God's word to drive you far from Christ, drive you into your own self-reliance, self-dependence, self-exaltation at the end of the day. Because what's the end of that story? I did it. I, yeah, I've got a pass, but I pulled myself out of the pigsty. I brought myself back to my father and I earned his favor and affection again. All praise to me. Oh, that's not Christian. We don't get anywhere with that message. The glory of the parable is the father's response. He said, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Where are you in the household of God if you just had to track yourself, slave or son? And for a brief moment, just to talk about the sexist thing behind this, okay? I know I'm talking to a lot of ladies and saying you're sons, all right? Guys, just for a minute, you are beautiful brides. You are precious daughters in the kingdom of God. Brad, I want you to feel 
your beauty and importance as the bride of Christ. How you doing, Brad? Yeah, it's a little tough. Got, ladies, we get it, all right? We get that reading this language in this culture, in this context, has got to feel like, okay, could you stop with the sons thing? Could you just go back to the sons and daughters thing? Could you get out of the brothers language and go to the brothers and sisters language? And I've got to say, yeah, there's a lot of spots we should do that. There's a lot of times that I will try to say brothers and sisters when the passage says brothers because the word's there and you can, you can legit translate it. But in a society in which inheritance is passed from father to son, I got to tell you this. The good news is you don't want to be daughters right now. Girls, ladies, sisters, you want to be sons. You want to be equal in the kingdom of God to the ones who get to inherit, which is the men. You Kara are a son in this sense, a female son of God, which again, don't clip that out of context. <laughs> you get why we're talking sons in this language though right here? It's because for Paul to say this to a congregation, a group of congregations filled with men and women, and all of them hear that they're sons, the women aren't going like, no, why can't this be written to me? They know it's written to them, and they're going, what are you talking about? I'm like a son? And Paul's like, yes, you get it. It's a big deal. There is no male, female. Just like there's no Jew, Gentile. Like there's no slave, free. There's no ranking that puts some as more privileged and others as less. Sonship to all. The words of the Father to all. We're not just distant heirs as part of this. We are dependent heirs. We're in God's household, all of us, with the same sense of expectation of what the Father wants to bestow on us from his kingdom. Yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. If you're feeling that right now, so is Paul. And if these two metaphors haven't felt overly ambitious yet, <laughs> buckle up. We're going to skip from seven or from eight on for a little bit, because like I said, that's Paul's testimony a little bit to them. And I want us to dive into the last set of metaphors where we understand Paul's words, chapter four, verse 21, this way. Tell me, you desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? Again, just so we can remember law. Law, Torah. Law, Torah, Pentateuch. First five books of the Old Testament, which is mainly not laws, but story in which law shows up now and then. All right? So if you're seeing, do you not listen to the law, and you're thinking, what am I doing eating pig? That, no, okay. Because he's about to talk about the narrative part of the law. The story I told you about Abraham and two women and two children. So let's dive into it. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born, in accord, born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now these two may be interpreted, or sorry, this may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, what he's saying in chapter 24 is that story, history, real, I'm going to borrow. He's not saying that when you read Genesis chapter 16 through 18, it was fake, it, it was made up, it was just a myth, it didn't happen. It would be similar to if any of us were to use the language and say, that's your personal Holocaust, that's your personal 9-11. Nobody would be saying at that moment, the Holocaust 9-11 didn't happen. They'd be borrowing from history in order to say, this is how significantly I feel this. Remember that whole way that our psyche changed because of those moments? That's what I'm referring to. Paul's doing the same thing here, okay? When he says in 24, this is allegory. He's referring back to history, real stuff that really happened, real people, but he's going to Take it and shape it for some of his own purposes, which is going to be really important because he's going to, in a little bit, borrow Sarah's language, which feels in the context of chapter 18 really harsh. But he's going, to, he's going to use it. So just like when we talk about Jesus' parables, you got to get at the point without trying to make everything fit so rigidly. Same thing with this allegory here, okay? He's going to borrow it, use it, work with it, 
Just don't try to press everything home or press the metaphor too far. Let Paul set the limits on it, and we're going to have fun with this. All right? Well, fun is oddly defined. This may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to Jerusalem? That should shock us for a moment because it did not feel like we were leading to Jerusalem. Hagar, Sinai, Arabia, Jerusalem. That doesn't feel right. In slavery with her children? If you're Jewish at this moment and Paul's talking, you got to be going, what? Wait, hey, hang on. Read that back. He got it wrong. He, he said that wrong. No, you, really? Okay. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she's our mother. For it is written, uh, quoting from Isaiah 54, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. <laughs> How are we doing? You thought my opening metaphor was tough? Here we go. Using from the past, he's going to set up old covenant, new covenant, Kind of language. Because he says right out of the gate, right? These are covenants. And the old covenant is represented by Hagar. Now, just in case you're not really familiar with Genesis 16 right out of the gate, you may remember there was a guy named Abram. We've talked about him a few times because Paul's been referencing him a few times. We've talked about him in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. But in between 15 and 17 is 16 and in 16 is a real tragic moment. It's the moment that really just makes us, one of the moments that makes us go like, you want us to follow this guy? Because he's totally not the serpent crusher. He's totally not the hero of the Old Testament. But we're supposed to follow him in a few ways. Okay, because in 16, he's heard that he's supposed to have kids. His wife's not having kids. And so his wife says, come on, let's just do what people around us do. Why don't you just take my servant, impregnate her, have a baby, we'll adopt the baby, and it'll just kind of work. Because prior to that, with no baby born, Abraham was telling God, I've got a servant, and I guess I'm just giving all my stuff to the servant. Because no baby through my body yet. Chapter 16, ultimately, baby through Abraham's body, not through Sarah's body, through Hagar. All right, so in case Hagar kind of made you think of like Hagar the Horrible, the old like Viking, not the Hagar we're talking about, that Hagar. She's in contrast to Sarah, all right? So, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Hagar and Sarah. Next level, kids that are born, Ishmael and Isaac. So far, we're good. Everybody's got their Sunday school stuff back. Okay, great. Now's where it starts to, to me like, um, Paul, you had us on the one. Now you're doing like this inception level thing or something like that. We're doing dream within dream. We're going metaphor within metaphor. All right, so now... Mount Sinai, which is not in the promised land, right? Key point he's making here. Not the end of what God has freed his people for, a place of instruction along the way, a place of training along the way, but not the final resting point for God's people. That Mount Sinai is going to be compared to another mountain, which you might be thinking up to this moment was going to be Mount Zion, right? If you know the story of Jesus, he went into the Jerusalem. He was there on Mount Sinai, or on Mount Zion. He was, he's, 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 that's the different mountain, right? But no. It's a Mount Zion that apparently is going to be above because Jerusalem is over here. And to play this out even more than Jerusalem, present-day Jerusalem, is contrasted with a metaphoric Jerusalem Above, a, a spiritual Jerusalem, we don't, we don't get a lot. We just get above. 
But what all this represents over here is slavery. And what all this represents is freedom. What all this over here represents is what you through your power, through what he's calling flesh, do to try and get God to keep his promises when it seems like we're getting impatient and he's not keeping them. And the contrast is promise. And the thing you have to do if somebody promises you something is believe it. And if you want more, tough. You get to believe what God said or in contrast, you're going to do stuff to make God faithful. And what he's saying is, you want to play like Abraham in between 15 and 17? Is that the way you want to live your life? God, I know what you said you're going to do. You're not getting it done. And so I got to make it happen. There are so many ways. If you take that metaphor, that, that pattern, and lay it over probably every aspect of disobedience, you can see that decision play out. You're in the garden. God's going to give you something good. It's clear there's a tree of life, but it's clear he's holding back, isn't it? You should probably make this happen. Your king, Samuel said he's going to come. You're going to sacrifice, but Samuel's not coming. You should probably go ahead and do it yourself. God told you to kill out all the Amalekites because in fulfillment of an ancient promise he had made against that nation, but you decide it's more politically expedient. You want to see God's kingdom go ahead, so you're going to kind of do it your way. Every time we seize and grasp, we're like Abraham trying to make it work with Hagar, and God says, instead, here's what I want you to do. It's, it's just so very complicated. Trust me. It's kind of it. When you sin, confess and believe. That's it. You want to deeply change? We're going to get into this in five and six. If the law is not going to do this, how's it going to get done? Want to just deeply change? Here's the metaphor. Spoiler. Be a tree. Just chill and grow and bear fruit. Just believe. That's why we keep hearing law not against like other things to do, but just against faith. Now, it, it's robust faith. The fruit that grows from the tree of faith, it does a lot. But the thing to do to become that tree is believe. He says it this way in 423, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free one was born through promise. And so ultimately, the way that this pattern gets laid out to the very end is that the old covenant is the law. The new covenant is of faith. Now, if you didn't like the metaphor and it's kind of hard to follow, I get it. It was really weird for me the first time I read this through. And I had to kind of piece it down and read some commentaries and stuff like that. And I'm not saying I've fulfilled every mystery in the middle of this. Like, why did you do this, Paul? But if you're getting it at all, if you really didn't like that story of me starting another church and it kind of bugged you, that rather than receiving the building that God would give us and letting him birth a congregation through it, it would really bother you that I would just go out and do that. Then honestly, the story of Abraham should really bother you. And neither of those things should bother you so much as your inability to follow God and do things all on your own. You should so absolutely be repulsed by those stories of Abraham, that story of me, that that you would not want to follow in that way of going at. And to reinforce how much we should feel something at this point in the metaphor, in the allegory, he says, using Sarah's words, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman. Her kid's making fun of your kid. So cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. This doesn't mean that Sarah did a great thing in the moment in history when it happened. But he's using it to say, 
You see how those two were incompatible? They could not live together. So let's just make this a little more practical. Obedience or sacrifice or service will cost you something. Forgiveness will cost you something. You're not stupid. You know this. Every time you're asked to serve or to give up your time, to give up your money, to give up the bitterness that you can carry against somebody and the power play you'll have over them, you know it. You know every time that something like this comes up, every time you get a prompting from the Lord to do something that is going to be of faith, what is it that faith is doing in that moment? It's saying, if I give this up, I will get back more. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how you're going to be faithful to this God, but I will not arrive in your presence at the end of my days and think, I got screwed. That's not going to be your heart. But you know, that is the heart Satan uses every time he's asking, will you obey? Will you sacrifice? Will you serve? Will you give up something that feels valuable now in order to invest in something that by faith you may not see the result of right now, but you can be positive. God is faithful to his word and he will never let you down. That when the story is told at the very end, you will come back and say, I would cast everything I had away in order to have gained him. I would sell it all for that field that I could have that treasure, that pearl. I would give up my entire life. I would pick up any cross if it would be the thing that keeps me on the path that arrives in his presence. That's faith. And whatever is killing that in your life, your love affair with your time, your comfort, your money, your sense of my future is guaranteed by your stock portfolio, whatever it is, I think the scriptural prohibition is severe in verse 30 because of the declaration in verse 31. You belong on one side of this column and it's not the law flesh slavery side it is because of jesus the freedom to let him transform your heart so that the treasures of this world the momentary pleasures that you gain through your disobedience so that all of that has no appeal in your heart this is the work that's been done through the gospel in other words to say it differently we are Distant heirs. We are dependent heirs as members of his household and we're expectant heirs. Because here's the weird thing about Isaac. He was born second. In this day and in this age, to be born second was not the means by which you got what the father had in full abundance. That was for the firstborn. But the amazing thing of the old story of the Old Testament is everyone God chose came second. Abraham, probably not the firstborn. Isaac, definitely not. Jacob, definitely not. The way that the story plays out through the, the rising up of all of those kids. God is the one who assigns firstborn rights, blessings, and abundance, but not to those who deserve it. So that when it lays all the way out on churches in the New Testament, Paul can look at them and say, it's not because you were so numerous and so strong and so powerful and so accepted that God chose you. He chose what was weak. He chose what was little. The Isaacs, not the Ishmaels. And it was on you that he placed his favor. What else that means is that you have a message for the rest of the week of the world. They're terrified. 
They know what's going on inside their heart. They're trying desperately to find some way to be strong, to climb the social ladder, to make sure that nobody's going to cancel them in life, to make sure that nobody's ever going to be able to cast them out. And you have a message of a God who has every resource, and you can come and say, I didn't have to do anything to impress God, but he chose me like he's been doing for ages. And that means the message of grace is available for you as well. There's more to be said, but to go back to an old pithy way of saying it, run John and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. As the worship team comes up on stage, what I want to invite you to do is to take a moment to quietly reflect over what we just thought through, all right? Maybe not all the academic of it, maybe not all the structure of it, but this one question of it. Are you less fond of your ability to try and take God's promises and make them happen through your power? If he says that there is ultimate blessing and purpose and comfort, are you willing to let him bring those into your life in his time according to his promise? Or every time you have a chance to make yourself more comfortable, more popular, every time you have a chance to make your future seem a little bit more secure, do you take it no matter what happens? These are questions I think we honestly have to be willing to question and ask of ourselves. Or another way of doing this, if you're a little bit further on in life, is to maybe look back and ask, have you become bitter because you feel like you did and God dropped the ball? Those stories we read about Abraham, those chapters are years, decades apart. God had said, then God said, then God said. And he never really saw what was promised to him. but he doesn't believe in his current state now, regret any moment of trusting God. Yet it's easy for some of us to look back and think, I made that sacrifice and God dropped the ball. I did this and God didn't seem to have come through, so I don't know that I can do that anymore. Wherever you're at on this spectrum, let's just take a moment and let the Lord search us and know us. See what it would look like for us to shift back again and have our eyes on him and to believe him. So let's pray. Father, if we were to come to any other God, if we were to submit to any other system, we would find what we needed to do to make ourselves right. We would go out, do it, and we would come back to impress you. And though it runs contrary to the way that we often feel things should be. We're so grateful that's not the way things are with you. We're grateful you don't have and grant more access to one person in this church than to another. We're grateful that your plan to change us isn't simply through rule-keeping. guarantee if it's going to work isn't based on us and our past and our efforts. But Lord, as we've prayed before, we believe. We believe you're the one who's initiated this. 
We believe that when time was right, you sent Jesus to accomplish this. And we believe that your spirit is at work within us now to remind us that this is what it would look like for us if you were just our father and nothing more, not our boss, not our master, but just our father. What it could look like for us to just live with you as your children. Father, we, we feel it and we, we, we sense it and we want this to be truer of us. And so we say, we, we believe this, Lord, but would you help our unbelief? Would you help our anxious unbelief? Would you help our bitter unbelief? Lord, would you help our hoarding unbelief? Would you help our unbelief that has us grab for every comfort now? Because we don't think you're going to do it for us later. Would you help us to look back over our past and stop listening to the words of our enemy that it wasn't worth it. You may remember that every faith, every faithful saint who walked towards you, who is with you now, could be watching this moment and saying, it's worth it, just keep going. It's so worth it to trust in Jesus. but help our unbelief. Let's stand and sing together.